The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the all-new Film Weekly podcast from the Guardian Film Team. Each week we'll be bringing you our thoughts on the week's big and small releases as one big friendly group. This week I'm joined by Peter Bradshaw and Catherine Shord and we'll be boldly going where many critics have gone before by chatting about Star Trek Beyond, comparing each other's genitals in Chevalier and learning all about the killings of Tony Blair. But first up, there's something rather big on the horizon. It's Steven Spielberg's gargantuan adaptation of Roald Dahl's adventure, The BFG. He's enlisted his Oscar-winning Bridge of Spies star Mark Rylance to star as the titular beast who takes a young orphan girl played by Ruby Barnhill on an adventure involving Snozcumbers, the Queen and Rafe Spall. Why did you take me? Because I hears your lonely heart. hearing all the secret whisperings of the world. Peter, Roald Dahl's books are often difficult to adapt because in amongst all of the fun, there's usually something darker around the corner. Do you think Spielberg nailed the tone? I think, broadly speaking, he did. He takes a very different role, a very different line to, um, let's say, Wes Anderson with the fantastic Mr. Fox, who kind of took it a night's move away from the material and Americanized it and zhuzhed it up a little bit and created a very good film. But this is a much more straight adaptation. It's very much in the key of C major. It's quite a respectful adaptation. I think it's worth making the point that this is the last screenplay by Melissa Matheson, his great collaborator, who of course wrote E.T. and there are very interesting comparisons with E.T. here. It is a very E.T. film. I really liked it. I thought that the uh, the effects that created digitally refabricated Mark Rylance's gigantic presence as the giant worked very very well and I loved his performance. It's a very sweet and very sweet natured film. There's no kind of side to it. It almost it's like kind of Teflon. There are no ironic little crags to hook your interest in a way and yet as a complete entity I think it works very well. My only uh, having said this about there are no crags or hooks to it I um, I would say that I'm a little less happy with the scene at the end when it goes to Buckingham Palace and it becomes a bit broad. I mean, I think the whole thing is for younger kids. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I think it's skewed towards, it's a family film pitched towards younger children. But there's a sense in my mind when it gets to Buckingham Palace at the end, when they have to apply to the Queen as a deus ex machina to kind of help them out, that Steven Spielberg has a rather touristy view of our own humble country and I, I sense this in War Horse and I sense it again now. He's a guy, an American guy of a certain age who thinks he knows what Britain and London is all about uh, and it's a bit touristy and there are some things which kind of jar a little bit. But on the whole I think he's tapped into a certain a certain tone of Roald Dahl, perhaps it, also a tone of Quentin Blake's illustrations I think surviving spirit in the film uh, and so I, I really liked it I thought it was a great piece of work Peter was saying it's quite a faithful adaptation which it is for most of it but there's quite a, there's a darkness missing still especially when it comes to the other giants they, they speak of who are less 
friendly than the, the main giant. We don't really get much depth into actually what they do and the dark things they get up to, which Waldahl did go into. Yeah, I was a bit surprised by that because, after all, E.T. is surprisingly dark and brutal and sort of upsetting, uh, really. I mean, I think the key thing about this film is one has to see it as a, a progression in Spielberg's mad crush on Mark Rylance. You know, he, they, this is the second of their four planned collaborations so far. And in Bridge of Spies, it was a sort of portrait of love to Mark Rylance. There was a lot of painting of Mark Rylance. And this is a sort of writ, amazingly large uh, love letter to him. You know, he, he wants to make him as big as possible somehow. And, and, and I think that works brilliantly. And I think... You know, it's easy to be as enchanted by him and by all the kind of Jerusalem-style elements of Mark Rylance in this as he is. Um, I think that's where it sort of flies. I think there is a slight... I mean, I think Peter's right. It's really a family film. It is for kids, and it's not It's not a crossover film. And that's, I think, a refreshing and good thing. Uh, it may explain, to some extent, why it hasn't done quite so well in the States. I think there's a lot of... Or, and I suspect it won't sort of perform amazingly well here. Yeah, because it's barely cracked 50 million in the States, yeah. and it's a $140 million budget, so it's going to be a big loss. I think people in the States don't know quite how to take Rylance, you know, and Roldal. They're not such big properties as they are here. We don't feel quite so emotionally involved. Uh, so yeah it's sort of explicable why it's not done so well I think it's a great pity there's a lot to like about this film I could certainly as as per Peter as per you have done with a bit less broadness in terms of London a bit a bit more dark uh, in terms of the plot uh, you know but the I suppose the point of the film is it's not it's a sort of premise rather than an adventure it doesn't really it just poodles along and and Spielberg just loves being in that world and loves you know making Rylance as big as possible that's his that's his point with this for me, there was a slight pacing issue. I, I felt that the, the first half, when they go to the world, not really a lot happens. And you you look back at the novel and you think, this is a, quite a thin story. It's like when Cinderella was kind of dragged out by Kenneth Branagh into almost two hours. And you realize Cinderella is itself also a very thin story. In the BFG, a lot of the first half is just them having a chat. And not not a lot happens. And I, I was I was more bored than I thought I would be, given the, given the fact that it was a Waldahl film directed by um, Steven Spielberg. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I think, you know, all of us these days are, are quite accustomed to things moving at quite a quick lick. I mean, we, I know we're going to talk about Star Trek Beyond in a minute, but even that, I was watching it last night and there's a little boy on the row quite near me. And within the first 10 minutes, he said, when when does it end? <laughs> you know, I think I think we are very, you know, something like Finding Dory. So you're calling me a child. Yeah, <laughs> but I think we are all kiddots now. We're all very accustomed to, to sort of rapid fire stuff. I personally didn't have a problem with the slowness and even the kind of stasis of those scenes. I just liked, as you were saying, hanging out with the little girl and the big giant in this wacky world that they've got going. And I did think that there was dramatic jeopardy with the fact that the the BFG is being bullied and that he is paradoxically small in comparison with his sort of big, horrible, older brother figures who, like the world's most horrible kind of Top Gear presenters are doing this kind of ghastly kind of thing with cars and bullying him and he gets humiliated in front of the little girl and I thought that was actually quite powerful in a way Rams Sophie hide Does you have a little pet? I, as I say I think it's weird that Roald Dahl thought right how am I going to end this I just end this with the most massive and weird deus ex machina device possible the queen her majesty the queen that is mm. the only thing that I can think of to it's, do. Like, it's like he got a, he had a great character the BFG is a really great character but not really a good story to to put him in and I think that's that's not just 
Spielberg couldn't really fix that, the ending, because he had to go back to England. But it's such a bizarre sort of fever dream of an ending. It is bizarre. I mean, I think it's quite interestingly bizarre. It's a bit like the Nutcracker in a way. It's, it's kind of dreamlike and weird. But I think also with a, with, <laughs> with a sort of gap of time from 1982, it looks... Kind of, it looks semi-period uh, and a little bit kind of touristy and sort of Madame Tussaudsy in a way to bring in the Queen and bring in the the palace and the, and the guards and everything like that. I think that the moment when um, the little girl Sophie rubs the, the 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 glass in in his lair and it's a picture of Queen Victoria, something weird happens mm. to the film in a way. It becomes more specific in a way that nobody would ever suspect. And I'm kind of talking it down now, and I don't want to talk it down because I found myself really into this film. I mean, I thought as a spectacle, it was wonderful. I I was kind of a bit choked up at the kind of quasi-Christian scene, the the E.T. scene at the end, where basically the giant says, I will always be with you. And that's a very kind of weird sort of New Testament thing that Mm. happens in the film. But I, I kind of really liked it. I mean, I think there's a lot to a lot to like about, a lot to sort of marvel at. Uh, but as I say, it's odd. it is an oddness, an eccentricity of the film, that last scene. I think that's the thing. I think one has to remember that the BFG was conceived as a uh, a work of affection for Dahl's own granddaughter. You know, it was a love letter in mm. the same way that this is a love letter to Rylance. And that, it does make it very moving. It doesn't necessarily make it great mainstream entertainment. But I think if it catches you in the right mood, it, it's dev- it can be devastating. From infinitely big giants to beyond with a third sci-fi actioner in the rebooted Star Trek franchise, Star Trek Beyond. The crew are all back in position, including Chris Pine as Kirk and Zachary Quinto as Spock, but this time Fast and Furious director Justin Lin has taken over from J.J. Abrams. This time around, our beleaguered crew respond to a call for help on a far-off planet, only to find themselves stranded and at the mercy of the malevolent Kral, a power-hungry villain who looks remarkably like Idris Elba wearing a shoddy Halloween mask. It isn't uncommon, you know. It's easy to get lost in the vastness of space. There's only yourself, your ship, your crew. You really want to head back out there, huh? This chapter has also been co-scripted by the extremely charming and polite Simon Pegg. Does he bring the lols? (laughs) No. Uh, no, he doesn't. I, I like, I mean, I'm, Simon Pegg's growing on me. And I think he, he did well last week with the uh, uh, Sulu things. And, and he, he explains it all very well. Uh, he doesn't bring enough jokes to the script here. And he gives too much to Scotty. Uh, much too much, in fact. <laughs> but uh, generally, what I didn't like about this film, uh, and probably that's why I've upgraded BFG, is in the light of seeing this one, really. Um, is that it just seemed absolutely redundant to me because it's just like making a, a telly special. And I mean, what the first reboots of Star Trek do is to make it big screen, to revamp it, to make it fresh and J.J. Abrams. And I can see the point of that. With this, what's the point? What's the, what is the point of just being nostalgic and just, you know, it just is shot and paced like a telly episode. I found it unutterably boring I'm afraid I mean I'm not a Trekkie I'm not a Trekker I, I don't enjoy the world but I'm, I enjoyed the first Star Trek film quite a lot this for me was just dead the first one tried hard to get in the non-fans I think to mm. get them into the franchise now they're being a bit too comfortable I think like we've got everyone in now so we can just kind of make a film for the fans but I don't even know if it's specific enough for the fans to enjoy it it felt like it retread a lot of the um, territory from the last film because the, the Enterprise was in trouble again there was an attack on the homeland it felt quite repetitive 
I I agree. I think I enjoyed it more than than Catherine. I think I enjoyed it because of its sort of telly episode in mm. a way. I sort of sat down to it and got up from it thinking I feel like the way I, that way I did when I was a kid when I watched an episode of Star Trek that I you know I'd had my money's worth and I was perfectly happy and I kind of was in a way. It certainly didn't have this sort of enormous rush that I got from the first J.J. Abrahams Star Trek. Uh, I but I think that the casting still works terrifically well. I still sit down and think this is really good casting. Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto, very very good mm. together, and I still think uh, maybe. I, I, he's taken the emphasis off. One of the things I've quarrelled a bit about Simon Pegg's script is not merely what I, everybody's saying that he's padded his own part a little bit outrageously, <laughs> but he's taken the emphasis off Chris Pine, and I think he's a really, really good Kirk. Uh, but I, I still really like Zachary Quinter, who mm, just rules great. it. He comes on and he's absolutely brilliant. He just he looks so at home in that yeah. role. He's got a great double act going with Carl Urban. Again, very trad thing to do is, is the sort of sniping and bantering relationship with Bones. But I think it worked very, very well. I, I, I don't really have a problem with it. It's a, you have to wade through a lot. You have to chew through a lot of stuff to get to the sort of funny little quirky character bits, to be honest with you. But I didn't mind. I love the Yorktown scenes I, I liked. Um, I thought Idris Elba was a bit thrown away, to be honest with you. I think we, we, it, it took a long time to get to the point of Kral, an awfully long time. Uh, and you were wondering, what, who is Kral? What is the, what's the deal with Kral? He's an anti-Starfleet insurgent. Why? Where? How? What's, what's happening? Uh, my memory is that Benedict Cumberbatch's role in the previous film, we got to the point a lot quicker. And he, go, he got a lot bigger, sharper, dialogue-heavy confrontational scenes. Whereas Idris Elba doesn't get those, or at least doesn't get them until really the very end. So, I, you know, I've got my problems with it, but I did think it was quite entertaining. And I, I'm still a sucker for the old Enterprise crew. The, the basic thing is for Enterprise crew. And um, I still like the idea of Uhuru and, um, Uhuru and uh, Spock's slightly kind of poignant, thwarted romance. I I like that. I, I mean, I did. I quite like, you know, the Sulu stuff. We were talking about how Independence Day fudged the gay relationship. Uh, and the gay relationship of Sulu here, it's not very important. I mean, he, he has the, his gay relationship is with a civilian and not with anybody, as it were, important in the crew. But it's honest enough. It's clear enough. They've got a child, quite, quite, which is from a cons- the conservative rights point of view, it's quite daring of Star Trek. So I, I haven't got a massive problem with it. The gay relationship um, subject's difficult because Henry was asking Simon Pegg about whether he thought he was being too coy and Simon Pegg was saying if you go too far then you're making a massive point and it feels out of place. So do you think they got the balance right in this, Catherine? I, I sort of, I was well up for believing in that. I, I really was. But seeing it, I didn't feel it was quite well judged because you it felt both coy and nudge nudge because what happens is he greets his husband or partner and 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 child after presumably quite a long absence in you presumably think a kiss might be (laughs) warranted Uh, but they put their arms around each other in a way that is sort of slightly more romantic than a friendship and the camera kind of seems to pan in on the hands as if to say look look you know and quite proudly as well look what we've done and it just felt to me slightly just I, i kind of the intention I think it's probably very honourable and good but it felt very easily snippable for other markets and it felt just a little bit uh, you know I mean honestly they, you would at least embrace I should think after some absence so yeah for me that didn't quite work I mean I think 
I think the whole, what I didn't like about it in terms of it being like the TV thing is what Justin Lin also brings to it, which is this sort of fast and furious style, multi-ethnic soap aspect, which, you know, it works very well uh, in, in lots of films. But I find that quite tedious, I'm afraid. I'm not very invested in, in the interpersonal relationships of the Enterprise crew. I think you ha- really have to be in order to enjoy this film. Well, going back to TV next year, there's a new show, um, Hannibal showrunner uh, Brian Fuller is creating for CBS and, and Netflix over here. Um, I feel like it's going to work better on, on TV, going back to the basics. I guess, I mean, I, I, you know, hands up, I'm just completely... Don't care with the way. <laughs> I really don't care. It just leaves me... I mean, it made me really think even better of Star Wars because I just can see how exciting that is. I, I mean, and at the beginning of this film, you have Chris Pine's voiceover explaining what they're doing, explaining that they're conquering new worlds and finding new things. And all that, I can see that that's exciting. When Star Trek started on telly, it was, you know, after the... It was when space exploration was sort of getting going and it was a big, exciting thing. And I wanted sort of more of that. I didn't feel excited about the new lands because every alien they encountered just looks the bloody same anyway. They've all got the funny head and, you know, queer. Is. So I didn't. I just didn't. It didn't grab me in that way. It didn't galvanise me. One thing I would say is I always like it when they're walking down corridors. That's another <laughs> thing. I, I love it because it's about the boring, uninteresting, non-dramatic life of the USS Enterprise. And I used to love it when I was a kid, and I love it now. Just walking down on their own, singly sort of three abreast, nodding to people who are going past in the other direction, <laughs> going through the zh, zh doors. The Aaron Sorkin scenes. I love, I love it, yes, exactly. Aaron Sorkin scenes of the doors. Absolutely brilliant. I love it. We're crash landing now in Greece for Chevalier, an offbeat comedy that won the best film prize at last year's London Film Festival. It's the new offering from Attenberg director Athena Rachel Sangari, who has also produced Yugoslanthem Ostrama's Dogtooth and Alps, as well as Richard Linklater's Before Midnight. In this film, a simple fishing trip becomes something rather strange when a group of men start a competition to find out who is the best in general. Silly games soon turn sinister as competitiveness gets out of hand. Peter, this arrives with a yacht load of acclaim from around the world. It also screens at Toronto. Is the film the best in general for you this week? No, I have to say this is my big disappointment of the week. I mean, I'm a big fan of Sangari. I loved Attenberg. But I sat down to this. I thought, this is a film which is as if it's been grown in a laboratory, a kind of film festival laboratory for kind of chin-stroking film buffs. And I, I want to say, well, okay, yeah, I get it. They are macho guys on this boat and it's all going to turn sinister. Is it? When is, it going, when is this sinister thing going to happen? When is the, the visceral emotional punch going to emerge? And it never quite does. It just seems to circle around and around and around and around. And then we get to the end and nothing seems to have happened to any of them. We, where's, the, where's the confrontation? Where is the analysis and disclosure of masculinity that we're promised? It just... I, to be honest, it just doesn't seem to happen. I mean, I, I, my hopes were sky high for this because I, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by the the new Greek wave. Although I do have my worries about it, I think that, that certain times of the past, some of the films in this canon have become mannerisms, and I think Sangari has retreated into mannerism here. I, I really was disappointed with this. I've, I've got to say. Catherine, as someone who is surrounded by men in the Guardian film team, is this film an accurate representation of the sort of masculinity you see every day at your desk? (laughs) 
Um, no, I mean, that for me, that was one of the weird things about it, is that I can see it's interesting to have a female director taking on this subject, but it just didn't ring true at all for me. And it felt like it would, if I were writing a film, I'm afraid, I know this is a terribly non-PC thing to say, but I just don't think, even though I spend my whole life with men, I don't think I could write realistically about this kind of macho competitiveness. And this just did not ring true for me. I mean, do you think it's realistic about that? I don't think so. I mean, I think it's it's like an interesting dissertation mm. uh, in a most extraordinary desiccated way. It's mm. as if it's taken from about 10 or 12 removes from what would actually happen. Mm. I mean, I like the idea that they are totting up and giving themselves marks. That kind of reality TV kind of big brother thing was was interesting. But it didn't go anywhere. I had, I, I almost, after a while, forgot that that was in fact what was happening. Mm. Uh, it seemed to be extraordinarily obtuse that you didn't say, well, okay, so who's doing well? Who's ahead? Mm. You know, who's, you know, how many exactly how many marks out of ten have I got then for my ability to go scuba diving or or, or jet skiing or whatever it is they're doing? And it just seemed to retreat into this weird kind of uh, abstract world. And it seemed a bit supercilious, really, to be honest with you, some of the time. I thought in the sort of reductiveness, it was quite insulting, really. I mean, if if a man had made this sort of film about women, wouldn't we all be saying, what the hell? You know, they're not that sort of Well, basic. we might be, yes. Yeah. Uh, we might be. I didn't feel insulted in, oh, that, in that sense, no. <laughs> I, but I did feel a bit baffled that, mm. that I'd been offered something pretty opaque mm. and something which... I don't know. It didn't seem to. Uh, it didn't seem to engage me on any level, really, no, at all. Although it was, it was always kind of watchable. There were interesting performances, and the uh, erection scene was quite funny. And I, when that happened, the erection scene. I'm not going to go any further into it than that. I thought, wow, now we're getting somewhere. Okay, let's do something with this. How many? How big is his erection mm. compared to everybody else's? But. No, we're on to something else. Especially given that she's worked with Yugos Lanthimos, you, you you thought she'd go a little bit further yeah. with this, with, with yeah. a conceit too. Yeah, I mean, in his at his best, Lanthimos really delivers the goods on the idea of dysfunction and self hate. Mm. I mean, it's really sharp and jagged and uncomfortable. Um, Although, there again, I think th there are resemblances between this movie and, and The Lobster, actually. There are weird kind of echoes. Uh, and the way in which I had a bit of a problem with The Lobster, that too seemed to be retreating slightly into mannerism. This has gone as if it never emerged from mannerism. As if it's like a, a kind of sketch that she wrote, which never actually got off the uh, off the page. I mean, I thought The Lobster was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, me too. You know, lobster, it, you, could, you could recognise real human yeah. emotions, even though they were yeah, disguised. Okay. With, you know, I mean, yeah. that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. aside from whatever I thought of The Lobster, mm. certainly it's in a different kind of, it's on a different register than, yeah. than this. But I thought Attenberg was in a different register than this. There was something kind of gripping and mad and, and terrific about Attenberg, which mm. this didn't have. I was surprised how long Attenberg was it was like 2010 or something yeah, it was, yeah. yeah and it's a shame it you know, hasn't sort of capitalised on that we're taking a quick flight back to London now for the week's final film the controversial documentary The Killings of Tony Blair New Labour was backed by the most powerful media interest because they realised he was representing them he was caught red handed trading policy in return for hard cash from a businessman America has no truer friend than Great Britain. A riled up George Galloway, he's the guy who pretends to be a cat for Rolenska on Big Brother, takes the lead as our narrator, interviewer and person who stands against a variety of backgrounds wearing a silly hat for this takedown of the XPM and the money he's allegedly made from his involvement in the Iraq war. Catherine, there's a lot of undeniably shocking facts in the film, but was Galloway the right man to tell the story? No, 
I mean, it's a real pity because, and you know, he, what he said on Kickstarter to um, to fund this film was is is in no way realised. And Henry Barnes says this in his review. But uh, he, you know, on on Kickstarter, he promises it will take him all the way to the Hague to a war crimes trial and to the slamming of the cell door shut behind him. Jesus. I mean, it just doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't on any level, and it's incredibly distracting that he's hosting it. He's not a good host. Um, the amount of noddies I've never seen so many sort of inept and gratuitous and baffling and distracting noddies in my life and so although there's a lot of interesting points here and a lot of a good and impressive range of talking heads it's undermined by Galloway wholly undermined which is a great pity because one could do with a a good proper documentary about this subject because he gets a good variety of people to speak to you have um, Claire Short Stephen Fry yeah um, but in a way it felt so it felt erratic and weird and you couldn't understand why uh, you know a lot of these people would I mean it was it was sort of impressive it was impressive but it sort of felt scattershot and it felt uh, and then you know and then Galloway just goes off on massive kind of digressions and and it's so obviously a vehicle for him rather than a vehicle to nail Blair in the end that it's a great pity it's a great missed opportunity I Peter the release of the film um, comes just after the Chilcott report is finally unveiled what do you think this film actually adds to the discussion if anything not very much I mean in theory this is a moment for the vindication of the as it were the Corbynite or Neobenite left is that uh, for once they can say look whatever you think about the left this is something Mm. they got it right it was the left who are saying that we shouldn't have invaded Iraq. It was, as it were, the late Robin Cook or even the then backbencher Jeremy Corbyn who was saying, look, this is wrong, and they were a minority voice, and now they have been proved triumphantly. Their voices are now in the mainstream in a way that you couldn't have really imagined back in those days because they were so drowned out by the voices demanding war. but this film also feels redundant in that there's really nothing that George Galloway is saying that we don't really know. Yes, of course, Tony Blair is this extraordinary money addict. I mean, he could, be, he could have made the point that part of the reason he's so obsessed with making all this money is to insulate himself against what I suspect for him is the horrifying realisation that his legacy is being the most hated man in Western Europe. Uh, and... Very possibly the idea of being indicted as some sort of war criminal. That is not just a piece of rhetoric. I suspect there's a part of Tony Blair's mind which is calculating that might actually happen. Uh, it, could, it could happen. Uh, and part of the reason he wants to make as much money as possible is an insurance against that happening. But yes, there was something so redundant about this. Um, in terms of of a journalistic covering the waterfront, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I mean, they, he got a lot of very good... Respondents. I mean, people like Peter Oborn and mm. Stephen Fry and uh, all these people. Actually, it was really quite good. But what is he saying that's new? Nothing at all. It seems like he's bay- bayoneting the corpse of Tony Blair. Uh, he could have put it into a larger context and say, well, what does it mean for the current Labour Party? What does it mean for the Labour left? Uh, it's all very well saying, you know, Tony Blair cozied up to dictators. I mean, Mr. Galloway does something very similar himself. I mean, it'd be very interesting to see if he tried interviewing Nick Cohen. That would have really started some fireworks. It would have put some interest into this film. Mm. So, you know, it's not a bad film. It has it's some, some interesting things to say. It's never, it's never inappropriate to take another long look over the strange, dysfunctional career of Tony Blair. Uh, and it's not beside the point to say that it started with Bernie Eccleston at the very in, at the very beginning of his prime ministerial career in the in the late nineties. That he was already 
vulnerable to the blandishments of the money men even before 9-11, even before the great crisis which caused Tony Blair to lose his nerve uh, and basically sign up to anything George W. Bush wanted of him. But yes, there is something a bit ho-hum about this. It's a bit like a BuzzFeed list of headlines that are already out there. Yeah. I don't mm. really feel like yeah. anything else is yeah. uncovered. And that was sort of what was promised in the Kickstarter. You know, he said, well, the shocking truths he was going to uncover. But it almost feels like they got to the, po- to the point of making, like, yeah. fuck, we just found stuff that we already know. Yeah, I mean, basically, we do already know it. It's not beside the point f- to say it again. Fine. But it doesn't, and also it just, it doesn't say very much about what Tony Blair is like nowadays. And you think, well, this is this extraordinary enigmatic figure Let's put aside, you know, the prosecutorial kind of hat and just perhaps be a psychoanalyst and say, what what is it like for him now? Mm. Yeah, it's good. I mean, I think Galloway would have done better to lead a campaign to help produce and fund this film, but not be such a central part in it. It just hobbles it. You know, if you had a proper, credible, legitimate film that was made properly and fronted properly, it would be so much better. It would be so much easier to take it seriously. Um, it's very easy to discredit this film because it's so so much a vehicle for Galloway. Well, there's so much vanity. And you, when you watch a documentary by an actual documentary filmmaker, mm. you never see Oppenheimer in the no. book of silence, do you? Or you, never see, you? You never see most documentary filmmakers who aren't making it about themselves. This isn't about the subject. This is about Galloway for half of it. So well, in a way, I mean, you can see, you can see what, what, because you sort of do. It's Michael Moore made a career of doing exactly that, of mm. appearing in front of the camera and being the star. Uh, but you've got to have whatever George Michael Moore has he has his own star quality of a way and that's not what George Galloway has by any means he comes on and he already thinks he's a star that's the awful thing he mm. comes on and thinks <laughs> you all know me I'm basically a national treasure of the left everybody loves me no they don't particularly <laughs> to be honest no so there's an extraordinary sense of kind of unearned star entitlement that Galloway has and the minute he appears on it's camera. Very, it's a very weird scene isn't yeah. it? I mean you just the way he sort of parades in his yeah. hat it's very weird. But even when Michael Moore interviews someone you don't usually cut back to his reactions every two no. seconds or him eating they have no. lunch together don't they? Galloway goes to a restaurant and they have yeah. lunch and you see him yeah. eating what, it's just it's bizarre. Remember to check out theguardian.com forward slash film for in-depth reviews of all this week's releases as well as the latest news, features and reviews. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and subscribe to the new Film Weekly podcast on iTunes. To end this week's show, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Star Trek Beyond Star Chris Pine. I'm more cerebral than I want to be. Goodbye. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.